Thank you, Barry. Worship team, band. Good morning to you. It's good to be with God's people this morning. Corporate worship is such a vital means of grace, and we know that all the time, and sometimes it takes trials and struggles to, for it to really set in. And so these are special, special days in that regard. Uh, thank you for your patience with your leadership. We've had some hard decisions to make. Let me just tell you this. We're going to protect corporate worship on Sunday morning. That's right. We're going to do that. And even though there's been massive inconsistencies with our governor, for instance, allowing abortion meals and uh, betting places to stay open, casinos, which is just insane, um, there is wisdom in limiting exposure, even if the, the, the virus is not deadly for most, and we're grateful for that, it does create quarantine issues. And, and we, we have people who need to work. And if they don't work, they don't get paid. And so we're, we're trying to protect those who are vulnerable to sickness, and we're trying to protect those who have to work. And, and so we, we're going to try to limit the exposure by for a few weeks until mid-December, uh, not doing Sunday school and Sunday evening service, but Sunday morning worship, you can just rest assured whatever he says, we're going to meet on Sunday morning. Yeah. Because we need each other, we need corporate worship, and God, his name is magnified by our, our corporate worship. Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, we saw this last week, our dire condition, but then in verse 4, the Apostle Paul makes a massive, eternally impacting transition, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we come as trophies of grace, needing to hear a word of grace this morning, centered on your Son, the very embodiment of grace. Grant us ears to hear, and we ask this for his sake. Amen. Well, today is the 29th anniversary 
of the nationwide release of the animated film Beauty and the Beast, which would go on and become the highest grossing PG film of all time. And behind the animation for that film was a man named Glenn King. He's the one that sketched out the images of the transformation of the beast into a prince. Now, what's interesting is as Keen is doing his work, he has taped on the top of his desk a Bible verse. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. At an in-house meeting at Disney, just before the release of that film in 1991, he shared about what inspired him as he crafted the images that transferred or transformed that beast into that handsome prince. It was his attempt, he said, to depict the transformation brought about through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the story of transformation, the story of grace rescue, is the greatest story ever told. Of course, the transformation and the grace rescue only makes sense in the context of a situation that is dire, a situation that's in need of transformation, a situation that is in need of a dire, gracious rescue. And we saw that last week. Uh, We spent the majority of our time last week in verses 1 to 3. We saw humankind, humanity by nature. And what do we see about humanity by nature, which includes us all? We were dead. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved. We were enslaved to three tyrannical powers, following the ways of the world, following the ruler of the kingdom of the air of the spirit of the air, and also gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, enslaved to three tyrannical powers. Indeed, as a result, we were condemned. We were by nature objects of wrath. That was our situation. The situation was dire, and from a human perspective, it was hopeless. But God... And we saw that at the end of the passage. We just spent a little time there at the very end last week, but that's where we're going to focus this morning. We saw humanity by nature. Today, we're going to focus on humanity by grace. And in the first few verses here of our text, we see our past redemption. Notice me in verse 4. He says, These were true of you, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, again, he goes back to verse 1 there, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Those two words, but God, is the gospel in summary. But God, we were dead, we were enslaved, we were condemned, but God. And and what prompted the Lord to do this? Did he look through the corridors of time and see how remarkable we would be? How gracious we would be and, and kind and loving and holy we would be? No, not at all. We were dead. We were following the ways of the world. That's what he saw through the, cor- uh, the quarters of time. But God, what prompted him to do this, we can see in this text. He uses four words uh, to explain this. First of all, notice, rich in mercy. Because he was rich in mercy. Secondly, because of his great love. Because he is loving. Because he is rich in grace. And then in verse 7, because of his kindness. So in verses 4 to 5, we see three of those terms. Rich in mercy, great love. Indeed, it is by grace we were saved. Verse 5. Mercy, love, and grace. So what is this love that Paul speaks of here? It's cruciform love. It's love in the shape of a cross. It's the unswerving commitment to our redemptive good at the expense of God himself, as we know that through his son and his humiliation for us and our salvation. His love means that he genuinely desires the good of his people And gives himself to bring that about. I love what Martin Luther said about God's love. He says, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to him. Isn't that a good word? It bears repeating. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to him. In other words, he didn't pour out his love on us because we were so pleasing to him. In fact, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. We were by nature objects of wrath, but God because of his love. Notice this term as well, mercy. This is his compassion in our spiritual misery. The misery we brought on ourselves. God sees our affliction and he moves to relieve it. And then his grace. I love the acronym for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. You can think about it this way. God's grace covers our guilt. And God's mercy covers the the consequences, the fallout of our transgressions that we commit which are the fruit of our guilt. Hence, we need his grace and his mercy. And he says it's all a result of his love. His love that is expressed in a unique way when it meets sin and rebellion. And so God, out of his mercy, out of his love, 
out of his grace, has taken the definitive action, Paul says, to reverse our sin condition. And our sin condition was dire. We weren't sick. We were dead. In fact, he's going to coin, and scholars will tell you there's, these words aren't found anywhere else. He makes up words in the Spirit to describe what God does for us. So here's what he does. He's going to coin three verbs to describe this reversal, which takes up what God did to Jesus, and then he adds the, the prefix in Greek, soon, which we would translate together, and links it to Christ in these events, links us to Christ in these events. So first of all, notice in verse 5, he says, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. So in verse, chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus was made alive by his resurrection. That's what we celebrate we celebrate it every Sunday, but we certainly celebrate it at Easter. So God made Jesus alive by his resurrection from the grave. God in the spirit. And here it says, we were made alive with Christ, together with Christ. He puts a prefix before that verb. And so Jesus was dead, but God raised and he exalted Jesus. And Paul says, you were dead. You were dead, but God raised and exalted you with Christ. What's true of Christ is now true of us. Now, Jesus was dead, not in his trespasses and sins. He was dead in our trespasses and sins. Do you get that? When he died... Our sins were imputed to him. So he was taking the wrath of God for us. He didn't become a sinner on the cross. He was the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. But he was treated as if he was a sinner. He was dead in our trespasses and sins. And God made him alive. Paul says, by virtue of our union in this resurrected Christ, we have been made alive together with him. There's a term for that that we use. It's only used twice in the Bible, only once for our individual, personal uh, resurrection. It's called regeneration. Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of any righteous things we had done. He saved us because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration, there's the term, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, resurrection, another term that's used is new birth. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, the very religious man, Jesus, and he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you must be born again. It's a new birth. That's what Paul is describing here. And so he made us alive together with Christ. But secondly, we see the second verb in the first part of verse 6. He said... And not only did he raise us from the dead, he raised us up with him. 
That's referring to the ascension. So this word raised up is often used for the resurrection, so it can be confusing here. But here Paul applies it to the ascension because these two verbs travel together where we are, Jesus is raised from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. It's what theologians call the great exaltation. Christ has been exalted. And so having been raised from the dead, what did we learn in chapter 1? Jesus was taken up into heaven. That's called the ascension. And we have been raised up into the heavenly places with him. And so our being raised from the dead in Jesus means we have new life. Those new desires that you have, the ones that you experienced the moment you were regenerated, and, and keep this in mind, when we were regenerated, that is when we were resurrected spiritually, that was an instantaneous event. It happens instantaneously. It, it is a radical event. And it also is a holistic event. It changes everything. It changes the way you see reality. It, it, it changes the way you speak. It, it changes your attitude. It, it changes the way you interact with others, even others who may not treat you with love and respect. You have been raised. You have new life. It's why you have a new hunger for the word. It's not because you're better than the person who doesn't have a hunger for the word. It's because you have been raised up. You have been resurrected. That's what he talks about in verse 5. But here, he's not referring to our resurrection. He's referring to our ascension. It means that we've been given a new environment. We've been raised up with Christ into the heavenly places. We're no longer of this world. We're no longer bound by our senses. We are citizens of this world, but our primary citizenship is in the heavenlies. We've been raised up with Christ in the heavenlies. We are seated with him. We are now people who think of a greater heavenly realm, who now in Jesus work, speak, Act, think in spiritual categories. And so when people of the world, people who have not been saved, are observing us, whether it's in the workplace, or whether it's in our neighborhoods, or where we recreate, or even on social media, when they see us, they don't see someone who's bound up by this present age. They see someone whose life is informed by the heavenlies. And so by mercy, by, by grace, by love and kindness, we were dead, but God made us alive with Christ. We were enslaved, but God has raised us up with Jesus and set, it, uh, set us in the heavenly places with Jesus in a position of honor and even power. That brings us to the third verb. In the second part of verse 6, so he's raised us up. We have resurrection, verse 5. We, we've been ascended, verse 6a. And then notice, he seated us with him. Again, they're at third verb. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we've been made to sit with him in the heavenly places. And that's remarkable. Because where Jesus is seated in the heavenly places is the place of victory. 
It's the place of dominion. This is the king who is seated at the right hand of God. And that's our position now. That's what the apostle Paul is saying. We've already been made to sit with God in Christ. And so we are to act, speak, and live accordingly. And so the seat right next to God. I mean, this is, I wouldn't believe it if I didn't read it here. The seat right next to God in which we've been seated in Jesus is a throne, which means we presently reign with Christ. Now, that shouldn't surprise us if we know the book of Genesis, because in the book of Genesis, we were created as his image bearers to rule and take dominion. But we, what happened? We sinned. We went rebel on God. We turned on God. And, and so instead of taking dominion, we were brought underneath the dominion of sin and darkness and the kingdom of this world. But now we have been delivered and God in Christ has restored our dominion. That's why Paul was saying Colossians 3 in a sister text. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seated with him in the heavenly places. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says when people observe you, when they hear you speak, when they see you act, they should see someone whose mind is set on things above, not on the things of this earth. Because what can happen in this world, nothing can happen in this world that can dethrone us. We have been seated with Christ definitively by God's raising us up and seating us with him in the heavenly places. Christ is the exalted center the supreme sovereign of the heavenly realm, why would we want to fix our thoughts and actions anywhere else? So again, let me review. These verbs, made alive, raised, and made a sit, these refer to the the successive historical events in the salvation ministry career of Jesus So Jesus was resurrected, we've been resurrected. Jesus was raised to the right hand of the Father, we have been raised to the right hand of the Father. And Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, we have been seated at the right hand of the Father. We are more than conquerors, in other words, through Him who loved us. And the way we carry ourselves in the world should reflect that. Instead of looking angry and defeated, we have been exalted to the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. It's important. So think about this. We we, we began the letter by being told we've been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're in those heavenly places. We also saw that that's That place is where Christ reigns supreme, chapter 1, verse 20. And now he has blessed us and he has seated us with him where the spiritual blessings are. 
which means we are restored image bearers, taking dominion in the, in, by the scepter of Christ. So that's humanity by grace, what, what God has done for us already in the past by his redeeming work. In verse 7, we see humanity by grace, our future purpose. So we've seen the past, verses 4 to 6. Now we see the future, verse 7, and the purpose behind all this. He says, so that in the coming ages, in the coming ages, that's the future, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. All right? And I love that. Toward us in Christ Jesus. So in raising and in exalting Jesus, God demonstrated the surpassing greatness of his power. That was the term that was used in chapter 1. In raising and exalting us, he has displayed the surpassing riches of his grace. We didn't deserve that. In his kindness towards us. You could just say kindness is like the sum term, the umbrella term that expresses his love, his grace, and his mercy. And this reflects the divine purpose in saving us. We are a trophy. We are a trophy of grace. That's why it's so vital that the people of God be unified. Certainly, of course, the truth has to be the the unifying factor. It's vital that the people of God be holy. It's vital that the people of God be loving and hopeful and joyful, which are the fruit of the Spirit, because we are on display. We are the trophy of His grace. Indeed, I think F. F. Bruce was correct. He says, through time and eternity, the church, which he calls, I love this, the society of pardoned rebels, the society of pardoned rebels is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. We're going to see that again in Ephesians 3.10 when Paul says his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known through the, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. We are on display, not just to the world. We certainly are on display to the world. We're on display to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And what are we displaying? We're displaying the manifold wisdom of God. We're displaying his love. We're displaying his grace. We're displaying his mercy. What's Paul doing? Paul's reminding us of who we are because in chapter 4, he's going he's to lay out 39 commands. He's going to show us how to do this at the street level. But before he can give us these commands, he's seeking to recapture our heart by the grace and the love, the mercy of Christ. He's reminding us of who we are. We have to be always reminded of who we are. It's easy in a world of senses to think that we're primarily American citizens. And we are American citizens, and we love the United States. Praise God. But we are primarily citizens of another kingdom. And he wants us to represent that kingdom above all kingdoms. It's like the church is a, 
embassy in a, in a foreign land. And we are ambassadors in that embassy. And he says, here's the purpose. One day, you're going to be on display. You're on display now. But there's also a future purpose in this. Humanity by grace, our future uh, calling, or our future purpose. And that brings us to the last part of this passage. Humanity by grace, our present calling. Look in verse 8. Now, if you've been in Awana, I should be able to ask any Awana leader or child, what is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and just have you on the spot stand up and quote that. I'm not going to do that. But this is a, a, a critical passage, and so it's right that our Awana kids have memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's, it's two of the most important and, and memorable and famous verses the Apostle Paul ever wrote. These two verses really largely fueled the Reformation. Look with me in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. He said that in verse 5. He's reminding us it again. Through faith, you have been saved through faith. So though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, though we were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, God made us alive. He raised us and he seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. Salvation is all of grace. It's all of grace. Again, we saw earlier in verse 5 that Paul interrupted his argument to stress that salvation is all of grace. And here he brings it up again. But this grace that results in salvation is received through faith. In other words, not everyone's going to be saved. It's received through faith. Oftentimes you go to a funeral and it's as if a person is justified by death. You just make the assumption in the funeral, that person's in heaven with mama. No. Only those by faith receive this grace. And what is this faith? Let me just speak to this faith just a moment. It's not just an intellectual assent. It's much more comprehensive than that. First of all, it requires comprehension of something. What does it require us to comprehend? That God is holy and I'm unholy. God is righteous and I'm unrighteous. God is good and I'm not good. And God is just and my sinfulness demands justice. The wages of sin is death. I deserve my wage, death. I deserve judgment. And yet God, His grace, His wisdom, has made provision for my sin in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and obeys where I did not obey. And then He goes to the cross, and God's holy wrath is propitiated. This is loving wrath. It's merciful and gracious wrath, right? Because he's doing it for us. He propitiates the wrath of God in my place and he raises it from the grave. It requires me to comprehend that. So saving faith is comprehension. 
The second aspect of saving faith is conviction. What I now comprehend, I believe to be true. I believe that is absolute the case. That God in Jesus Christ has made provision for those who would believe in him. So comprehension and conviction. And then the third part of saving faith is commitment. I commit my life to Jesus. I was telling Craig and Dan this morning about a, a fellow that Heather and I met in El Salvador a few years ago. We were there on a mission trip. And I asked this fellow that we were evangelizing if he'd ever heard the gospel. And he, he gave me the gospel verbatim. I mean, it sounded like a seminary graduate. And I said, so you're a Christian? And he said, no, I'm not a Christian. I said, why are you not a Christian? You understand the gospel. And he said, because Jesus demands your life. And I said to him, you understand the gospel better than a lot of people who profess to be Christians. That's the third part of saving faith. It's commitment. In light of what you comprehend, in light of your convictions that it's true, you commit your life to Jesus. That's saving faith. But I need to clarify here. Faith doesn't save anyone. Faith does not save anyone. It's the grace of God that we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves us. Faith is just the instrument by which this grace is received. Think of this image. A syringe. So in that syringe is life-restoring, healing medicine. You need that medicine to be healed. You need that medicine to live. And so the syringe is the means, the instrument by which that medicine can get into your body. The syringe is not what saves you. It's the medicine in the syringe that saves you. The syringe is the instrument. Now, you have that medicine inside the syringe, and so there is no healing without the syringe. But it's the medicine in the syringe that saves and heals. Faith is the syringe. Grace is the medicine. Without the syringe, salvation is impossible. Spurgeon said it this way. Grace is the fountain and the stream. Faith is the aqueduct by which the flood of mercy flows down to us. Indeed, notice in the second part of verse 8, he says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so Paul is communicating here five clear ways or five clear evidences that salvation is not due to you. It's not due to me. First of all, it's by grace you've been saved. There is a massive distinction between a paycheck and a gift. It's by grace you've been saved. It's a gift. It's nothing you do. Secondly, your salvation is received by faith. But notice, 
And even your faith is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. Your faith is a gift. You say, well, does that make me a robot? No. We've talked about compatibilism in here. Divine sovereignty is compatible with my responsibility. And so I'm responsible to believe. I'm responsible to respond in faith. But even as I respond in faith, I can't see myself as superior to the one who doesn't. It's a gift. So faith is kind of like when my children were younger and didn't have jobs, and they would come to me and say, Dad, can I have some money? Why? I want to buy you a gift. <laughs> so they were buying my Christmas present with their money, or my money, rather. And so faith is just God crowning his own grace. And so it, it, it's by grace we've saved. Your salvation has been received by faith, like the syringe, the instrument. Salvation is God's gift. That's the third part here. So what exactly is not of our own doing, Paul says? What exactly is a gift? Is it faith or is it grace? It's both. The word this refers to the entire clause. Both grace and faith result in salvation. And fourth, it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Now, the Bible refers to several kinds of works, the works of the law. We saw that when we studied Galatians, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.11, the works of the law. What did Paul say about the works of the law? They can't save you because the law requires perfection. The law requires perfection. And I can assure you, even as early as it is this morning, you've already broken God's law. Because the essence of God's law is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And I'm not sure we've ever done either at any moment of our lives to the standard of God. The works of the law cannot save us. In fact, Hebrews 6 refers to dead works. Dead works. What are dead works? It's those merits I think I'm obtaining. So that one day when I die, God's going to look at my works and they're going to outweigh my bad stuff and he's going to let me in. You've heard people say, I hope I do enough. You, for those of us who've evangelized, you've, you've always heard this. I hope I've done enough. I think I've done enough. No, it's dead works. Because God's standard is perfection. Works of the law, dead works. Remember, Maybe some of y'all remember Benjamin Franklin's Famous line, God helps those who helps themselves. That's terrible theology. It's horrible theology because in our natural state, we're dead. And if God helps those who helps themselves, where does that leave us? It's not good. That's not good news at all that God helps those who helps themselves because we can't help ourselves. We're still dead. The dead can't help themselves. And that brings us to verse 10, which is glorious good news when you understand that. It's the fifth evidence, or the fifth way that Paul makes clear that salvation is all of grace. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I encourage you to memorize it. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Now, salvation has been described so far in this chapter by resurrection, by liberation. So a resurrection from the dead, a liberation from our enslavement, and rescue from condemnation. And now here in verse 10, Paul uses new creation language. Where do I get that? Well, the verb created is the, is the verb form for the noun in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the verb form. This is new creation language. Of course, we know that Isaiah prophesied about the day of the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation. Isaiah 65 and 66. And Paul is saying that day has come in inaugurated form through Jesus Christ, whose resurrection was the first event of the new creation, where the mortal has been swallowed up by the immortal, where the inglorious has been swallowed up by the glorious, where mortality has been swallowed up by immortality, the resurrection of Jesus is the first event of the new creation. And for those of us who are in Christ, we are new creations. In other words, that day prophesied by the prophets is here in inaugural form. In fact, notice this language of workmanship. You know what that word is? We don't want to make too much of word studies here. It's the word poema. It's where we get the word poem. We are God's literary masterpiece. That's what we are. It drives that home. Now that word, poema, only occurs one other place in the New Testament. It occurs in Romans 1 verse 20 where it refers to God's work of creation. So we are his workmanship. We are a new creation. So the good works here says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is the fruit of the new creation. That's what these, new, these good works are. And there's an ironic repetition okay, of this word. In verse 9... What does it say? Not a result of works. So is Paul contradicting himself? It's not a result of works. And yet here, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. What's he saying? He's saying it's not our works that save us. Our works will condemn us. But our works are the fruit of our new creation salvation that God has achieved in Jesus Christ. You see? So it's faith alone that appropriates this grace, but when faith unites us to Christ, faith does not travel alone. The fruit of this saving faith is good works. These good works are not generated by us. Paul will say later in Philippians that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to do and to will. 
He will tell us in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 3 that he uses means to produce these good works. He says all scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man, the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's the scriptures that equip us for these good works. It is God who works in us to produce these good works. In Titus 2, he tells us that Christ gave himself for us to make us zealous for good works. And then Jesus himself will say, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. Isn't that remarkable? They see your good works and they glorify God. In other words, they see your love. They see your commitments. They see your joy. They don't see angst and anger and, and just downright meanness at times. They see good works. And they glorify God because they know that's not in you. That's not inherent in you. It reminds me of a story that John Stott told of a, of a pastor named Reverend Paul Gibson. And at his retirement ceremony, someone had painted a portrait of Gibson. And, and they unveiled it. And, and so when Gibson spoke, he said this. He, said, I want, he thanked the artist for the, the portrait. But then he said, in the future, people looking at the portrait will not ask, who is that man in the portrait? They will ask, who painted that portrait? Likewise, God's grace is given to us, not so that people can ask, who is that guy? What is her name? God's grace is given to us so that they can recognize there's someone behind that. Who did that work of grace in them? The good works are the evidence that there is a great God behind those good works. Notice these good works have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that mean? Grace does not lead to passivity. I grew up in the tradition, as many of you did, once saved, always saved. And yes, that's true. It's a glorious truth. Eternal security. So, I invite Jesus in my heart as we use that line. Though you don't find that terminology in Scripture, you see repentance and faith in Scripture. And then I have fire insurance. I'm saved from hell. Paul addresses that problematic thinking, though. What shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If we have truly been made new, God's, Paul says God has prepared these good works beforehand. Indeed, new creations walk in these good works. The good works are the fruit. How do I know when I see an apple tree? The apples. The apples don't make the apple tree. The apples are the proof that it's a, an apple tree. That's our good works. And so let's bring all of this to a head. 
Let's try to review all that we've looked at in just a couple of minutes. We saw the high point of Scripture in Ephesians 1. God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. All things are going to be brought in submission to Christ. No matter what you see on the news, no matter what you're feeling right now, that's the reality. And what have we seen already? That plan is already in place, affected, secured by Christ's resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. The first fruits of Jesus' exaltation is that he saves a people. He saves a people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, who were condemned and enslaved. But he saved us by his mercy and his grace. And those people are what Paul calls his church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One day the entire earth is going to be filled with the presence, the reign, the glory of Christ. It's being instrumentalized today through his church. And that's why Paul says our good works are so vital. Those good works are the means, the means by which the lordship of Christ comes to bear on a broken world. We don't bring about the kingdom of God by fussing all the time. We bring it about by our good works, the fruit of our salvation, centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, centered on the great commission. So not only are we beneficiaries of God's new creation project, we're the instruments of it. We're the instruments of it. And Paul would say, set your mind on things like that. Isn't that an important word for us in this season? Let's pray. Father, there's a whole lot in this passage. But the essence of it, you're a gracious God. You're a loving God. You're a merciful God. You're a kind God. And we know these realities through the Son of God, by the Spirit of God. May it warm our hearts. May these truths encourage us. May they fuel our good works as we go into this week. May we be a people known, first and foremost, by our good works. And Father, for those who do not know Jesus in a saving way, I pray that you would bring them to the end of themselves. Perhaps they're trusting in their dead works. Maybe they're trusting in their perceived obedience. May they recognize that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And from that flows the good works that prove our salvation. We ask these things in the name, the matchless name, for Lord Jesus Christ, amen.